I have a confession here at the start. I have never watched an episode of Survivor. I can remember when Survivor first came out because I can remember how uh, interesting it was or, or how our city was intrigued because uh, we had a local Clarksvillian who was part of that very first season of Survivor. Uh, nevertheless, I never actually watched an entire episode of any of the seasons at any point. I've seen clips here and there. But nevertheless, I remember, and, and I'm still kind of intrigued by the premise of uh, Survivor because in a sense, it is just one giant social experiment. Over and over, repeatedly, as we take human beings and we throw them in this competition setting where there is extreme uh, um, a- or tasks asked of them, responsibilities given to them, and a great big prize for anybody who can survive the longest. And it wasn't long as we saw what was progressing in that, uh, that, that show, and we see it season after season, that people show up, they begin to meet one another, they assess each other's value that they're going to be able to contribute to the team, and then they form alliances or cliques, and they bring one another other together, and they begin competing, and inevitably by the end, it's every man for himself right? There's a million dollars on the line, buddy. I know that you have been my bosom buddy since the beginning of this, but you're chopped liver now. And in that, we kind of see a microcosm, really, if you will, of our broader human society. And the temptation that we have, especially in our sinfulness, to begin assessing the value of the people that are around us, and what we inevitably find is that we all have a sinful tendency to prioritize our lives over the lives of others. And when we do that, we begin to devalue the people around us, and therefore, when someone else stands in the way of what I want, what I need, what I believe that I deserve, then it's easy for me to dismiss them, to disregard them, to dispose of them in order to get what I want. It's the dog-eat-dog survival of the fittest mentality that so characterizes our society. But what the Bible teaches us is that God wants something so much better for us and for our society. God wants us to experience the heights of humanity and human value and human potential. But the only way that we can get there, the Bible says, is not by climbing and clawing our way to the top over the backs of the people that are around us, but instead we actually have to descend into the depths of the human heart and deal with the wickedness and the evil and the corruption that is there. Because in the kingdom of God, the way up is not to climb, it's to descend in humility and in holiness. And what we find as we begin to dive into God's heart for humanity is that we find every single life is valuable because every life is actually stamped with an infinite value. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13 is short and sweet. It simply says, you shall not murder. Can we pray? Father in heaven, as we come now to this time, I pray that we would not waste words. You certainly didn't in this commandment. It's very clear. It's very simple. But heavenly Father, we know that as we begin to see it applied to our life, it becomes significantly more difficult and complicated. And so I pray nevertheless for clarity this morning. Holy Spirit, that you would take heart or take hold of my heart and my lips, that I might better know you, make you known. And that, Heavenly Father, I might bring you glory and honor. 
and that we might magnify the name of Jesus, who, despite our tendency to prioritize our life over the lives of others, prioritized our lives even at the expense of his own. So may he receive all of the glory and the honor and the praise today. Amen. And amen. Brief review for those of you who may not have been with us within the Ten Commandments. Um, we are preaching through these ten words, if you will, that God spoke to his people Israel. We have broken them down, as has been traditionally broken down by the church throughout the centuries, into two major sections. The first four commands deal with the command that Jesus says is the greatest command, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so the first four commands tell us who we're supposed to worship, how we're supposed to worship God, and tells us um, uh, when we are supposed to worship, and it tells us how we are to live with his name upon us. The last six commands flesh out the idea that Jesus gives to us when he says the second greatest command is that we shall love our neighbor as ourselves. So starting within the home we saw last week, which is the heart of human society, and we saw the need to see homes that respect authority so that that then um, fleshes itself out and works itself out in the rest of human society, we see how the rest of these commands govern our relationships with others and direct us in how it is that we are supposed to love them. Our tendency when it comes to the Ten Commandments, we have said, is to oversimplify them and turn them into just a simple list of do's and don'ts. And as long as I am doing what I'm supposed to be doing and not doing what I'm not supposed to be doing, I'm good with God. And when we oversimplify these, we find ourselves in this place of legalism. Well, you know what? I set aside one day a week, 24 hours, where I don't do anything but focus on Jesus and you don't, so I'm better than you. Right? I don't have any graven images in my home, so I don't have any idols that I need to worry about. I don't use God's name as a cuss word, so I am bearing God's name well. What we're finding is that these are actually truths that are paradigms that grow. And as we chew on them, they become larger and larger. So before we can apply this command, we have to first understand it. And so we have to ask the question, what does it mean? Because there seems to be some confusion when God says, you shall not murder. And in reality, in the original Hebrew, this is only two words. Don't murder, period. Don't murder. And so don't, I think we kind of got an idea of that. Don't. But murder, we've got to ask, what is the nuance behind that word? I found Kevin DeYoung's work on the Ten Commandments potentially the most helpful. And just long story short, I won't bury the lead. He defines this word for, or, uh, for murder It's killing or causing the death by your action or inaction of a legally innocent person. Killing by your action or inaction or causing the death of a legally innocent person is what this command uh, forbids. So to kind of help us understand that, we can ask the question, what is murder, what isn't murder? Well, we know that this word, there's several different words in Hebrew that talk about killing and murder. Well, first and foremost, there's, this word is never used in relation to hunting, killing an animal, or animal sacrifices. So duck hunters, deer hunters, you're good, okay? This word is never used in relation to that, okay? It's never used in relation to any justified form of killing. Example being self-defense, Actually, just 
two chapters later in Exodus chapter 22, Moses gives the command that if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. So if someone is breaking into the house into the middle of the night and your life is threatened, you are freed in God's law to defend your life. So self-defense is never condemned in Scripture. Nor is just or holy war. It's a fleshing out of the self-defense mechanism or, or thought process. If I am given the freedom to defend my own life, we as a society are collectively given the freedom to defend ourselves. Therefore, Romans chapter 13, and well, in the Old Testament, first and foremost, God is the one who instructs his people when to go to war. And God sets the parameters of what that war is. When we get to the New Testament, where there is no longer a theocracy, a society that is directly ruled by God, as we see the nation of Israel was, according to Paul in Romans 13, the state is the authorized power from God to wield the sword both for defense and for punishment. So the Christian justification has, again, always been an extension of the principle of self-defense. And we've always worked with what's known as just war theory. In other words, Philip Ryken says it this way, Christians have long believed that a war is just only if it is waged by a legitimate government for a worthy cause with force, force proportional to the attack against men who are soldiers and not civilians. A summary of Christian just war theory. It is to be a defensive mechanism in collectively protecting one another. Therefore, it is never biblically or acceptable to be the aggressor. And therefore, we can say with absolute certainty, God condemns the actions of Vladimir Putin and Russia in Ukraine today. To be the aggressor, to put the lives of innocent civilians in jeopardy, to threaten innocent civilians with nuclear weapons is sin and a violation of this command. And so we can stand with the victims of aggression around the world. So this command doesn't forbid self-defense. It doesn't forbid war. Neither does it forbid the death penalty. Genesis chapter 9, verse 5. As for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require of it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. God instituted the death penalty there in Romans chapter 13. Again, Paul says of the state that the state is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath against the wrongdoer. And God also says, I believe that it's in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, that the reason that he gives for the death penalty is because every man is made in the image of God. And therefore there is value associated with it. The state then is given the authority to defend life by taking life where and when life is threatened. Many people think that the death penalty is a questionable thing for Christians because you shouldn't take life for life and it's not fair in that sense. But in reality... Defending the death penalty is a defense of the value of human life. To say that there is consequence because every human life is valuable. And so because we value each and every human life, there will be a penalty for those who choose to take the life of the innocent. So if that's what it's not, it's not self-defense, it's not war, it's not the death penalty, what is it? It's every level of homicide. First-degree murder, intentionally taking someone's life premeditatively individually or corporately, collectively, whether that be mass shootings and murders, whether that be acts of terrorism, 
whether that be a serial killer, whether that be an individual who premeditatively takes the life of someone else. But beyond just that, it is the willful taking of any life, no matter how age, no matter their age, no matter their ability to contribute to society. Therefore, it is, stands against abortion. It stands against euthanasia. It stands against suicide. I don't have the right to take a life, any life, even my own. This command forbids second-degree murder or voluntary manslaughter. I don't have the legal understanding to know the difference between that. You can talk to Brother Danny afterwards, and he can explain the difference between those two. My understanding is there are certain states that they don't even have a second-degree murder law. But essentially, what we see here is um, any unpremeditated act of murder with an intent to kill, crimes of passion, violent acts that result in someone uh, losing their life. When I thought about this, I thought about those old Western movies, right? You watch the old Western movies and the sheriff walks into the bar or out into the street and he wants to get everybody's attention. What does he do? He shoots that gun in the air. That bullet's going to come down somewhere, fool. And if you shoot it straight up and it hits somebody on the way down, you have created a violent act, you have taken a life, and therefore it is something that is a violation of this command, second degree or voluntary manslaughter. Doing something such as attacking a pregnant woman that results in the loss of her child, that would fall under this rule. Involuntary manslaughter is anything that is unpremeditated or unintentional that results in the taking of someone's life. Drunk driving? A drug addict sharing a needle that then results in an infection where someone dies, anything like that. But also the Bible goes as far as to say negligent homicide would also be a violation of this command. Because according to Deuteronomy 22 verse 8, the Israelites were commanded to build a railing around their roof. Because they didn't have air conditioners. The way they cooled off is they went up onto the roof in the, in the, uh, in the evenings. And so they had a responsibility to make sure that it was safe up there and that people wouldn't accidentally fall off the roof. Negligent homicide there. Also, when we get into uh, Exodus chapter 21, verses 28 and 29, the Bible says that if you have an ox and you know that that animal is dangerous and that dangerous animal kills someone and you've done nothing to restrain it, you are responsible for the taking of that life. So an idea of this in our our day and age, I think, would be leaving a gun unattended where children can find it and play with it and potentially shoot one another is a violation of this command. So again, according to Kevin DeYoung, just to kind of reword what he says, this command, you shall not murder, do not murder, is killing or causing the death by your action or inaction of a legally innocent person. Definition of murder. The question, though, is why does it matter? And the answer is because of what I stated earlier. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, when God creates man and woman, he creates them in his own image. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. The justification for the death penalty is whoever sheds the blood of man shall, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his image. Any attack on any human being is an attack on the image of God that they bear. Right? Any attack on any human life is an attack on the image of God with which they are imprinted right? If I have a picture, my understanding, if I have a picture of the President of the United States and I deface it and defame it and draw in such a way that it indicates that I want to do physical harm to the President, I am treated as though I have done it to him. Because it is his, his image. 
It is a representative, a representation of him. How much more than the creator of the entire universe, who has imprinted every single human being, no matter their age, no matter their ability to contribute to society, with his image. And therefore, since God's image is on every human life, every human life has infinite value because God is infinitely valuable. Therefore, every life is valuable because every life is stamped with infinite value. This command is not just necessarily about not damaging something. It's about protecting something. It's not just enough to not kill. Instead, it is to live in such a way that I value the lives of the people that are around me. I live in such a way that I live such that every life matters. Shapes what I think, shapes what I do, shapes how I speak. And so now that we see that this is about deeper than just don't kill, but why don't you kill? Because you value God's image. We need to figure out how to apply that. In order to do that, it's, this is going to be kind of like digging a cavity. Right? Have you ever had a cavity? A cavity? Go in, you got that tooth pain and everything else. Studying through this work, has, I felt like I've been, had just God dental work on me all week long as he's digging deeper and deeper and deeper. Because you show up and you've got a pain, you've got a problem, and you want to figure it out. And so the dentist has to drill down to the pro, well, root of the problem, find it, and then he has to apply the solution from the inside out. And so we are going to work in that direction. We see the big problem, the surface problem. We're going to dig down to the heart problem, and we're going to expose that and that sore root that's down there, and then we are going to fill it by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so to do so, we have two negative directions and two positive directions that I think come out of this commandment. Negative, not in the sense of bad, but two don'ts and two do's, okay? First one, as we seek to apply this commandment, is this. Do no harm. Don't hurt people right? And we can hurt people with our actions. And I won't rehash all of these, but everything that I talked about just a minute ago in defining what murder is, what killing is in this sense, first, second, third degree murder, all of those efforts to harm other people, don't do it. But beyond just that, go deeper and ask yourself the question, as this should shape your decisions, is what I am doing harmful to me or to other people? Because again, I don't have the right to take anybody's life, even my own, because I am created by a creator, owned by that creator, stamped with that creator's image and therefore his value. And so, sorry about it, my body, my choice doesn't work on either side of the argument. My body's not my own. Especially if I'm in Jesus Christ, I am a temple of the living God. I have been purchased and bought with a price such that my body is a temple for the Holy Spirit. So my life now needs to be lived from the perspective of what is God's will and what is God's image and how do I value that in the decisions that I make for me and for others. So I shouldn't do myself harm, I shouldn't do others harm. I should care for my body. I should care for those that are around me. I shouldn't make choices that are going to hurt other people. So before I go to that party and I start drinking alcohol or I start doing drugs or anything else, if I truly live by this command of do no harm, then I have to ask myself what could be the consequences for my actions and allow that to change what I'm doing. But it's not just with the things that we do, it's with the words that we say. 
I grew up with that song that kids sang on the playground. Sticks and stones may, hurt, may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is just crap. I have been hurt by words more than I can count. And I've been more hurt by words than I ever have by physical violence. And perhaps you have too. Words have power. James actually says in James chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, with our mouth we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. We can hurt and harm with our words just as we can with our actions. And the truth of the matter is, where and when we are willing to devalue people with our words, where we and when we are willing to demoralize them, tear them down, where and when we are able to dehumanize them with our words, the way that we reference them, talk about them in any other way, that is the pathway towards the next step, which is physical violence. So we should do no harm with our actions. We should do no harm with our words. But these don't come out of a vacuum. They come from somewhere. And that's when we dig down to the pain, the root cause of that pain in our tooth. And when we have a cavity, it's not at the surface level. It's down there at the heart, at the rotten core. And that's true of us. Our actions and our words come from somewhere. It comes from our heart. And so when Jesus gave his commentary on this command in Matthew chapter 5, he redefined our relationship with this command and said, you're not only not to murder, you're not supposed to hate. Because hatred is the root of murder. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22. You've heard that it was said that the... uh, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. There's the heart issue. You're angry with them. You hate them, right? And then whoever insults his brother, there's words, is liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus takes this seriously. He says that it's the heart. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart, we act and we do. And so Jesus says we have to bring this all the way back down to not just what we're doing physically, but how we feel. He shows us that murder originates in the heart, and so we have to guard our hearts. We do that first and foremost by focusing on who God is, on his value, on his worth, and the value that he then imprints on each and every one of us. But I would say one specific application of this principle is, brothers and sisters, we have to guard our hearts from the things in our lives that would desensitize us to the value of human life. One article that I read said that there was a military specialist. His job is to train soldiers to go into war and to help them with the mental reality that they are about to take a human life. And what was shocking is that he said as he began looking into the society and he began watching some of the games that our children are playing on their Xboxes and PS2s and PS5s or whatever they're up to at this point and everything else, he said, they're teaching our children exactly what I teach our soldiers. They're training them to see humans and not see value. We need to be careful about what we watch I can't remember the last statistic, but our children are being introduced to acts of violence and murder on television, even cartoons from an extremely young age, and they are being trained and desensitized to, to, to violence, and especially to murder. And so we need to guard what comes into our home. We guard what we watch. We guard what we play, and we allow our children to play. We guard what we read. We guard what we listen to. 
And we guard ourselves against the Satan's single greatest tool in helping us dehumanize someone else, and that is when we categorize people. Because when we are able to take a group of people and classify them into some collective identity, we no longer see their individual value. And so it's not wrong for us to begin to have hard feelings against those people. Grew up playing a game on, on uh, the video game, and it was, it was a World War II game. And so I'm an American soldier, and I'm out. And, you know, if somebody asked you, hey, you know, you're, you're killing people in this game. I'm just killing Nazis. It's okay to kill Nazis. Well, think about what that means when we begin to expand that. And we begin to lump people into these categories of liberal and conservative and evangelical Americans and black Americans and Asian Americans and whatever else it may be. As we continue to be brought in and sucked in into an environment where we group people together and only associate with that large group, we begin to dehumanize the people that are in there, and that's exactly how we have seen the justification and the process that justifies mass murder and genocide. We have to fight against our culture's tendency to begin lumping and grouping people into societal segments because I'll talk real bad about those liberals over there in such a way that I would never talk face-to-face with an individual across the table with me. So we have to guard our hearts from what desensitizes us to the value of other people. When we devalue them as groups, we're guilty of the sin of partiality, which is the Bible's term for racism, classism. James condemns it in James chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. If you really fulfill the royal rule according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. It's our tendency to always group ourselves. And when we group ourselves, it can become easy for them, then for us to determine that our group is better than that group. And when we dehumanize or devalue that other group of people, then we find it easier and easier to place ourselves above and therefore show partiality, which the Bible says is wrong. Because after all, the Bible says that we are to love our neighbors. When Jesus gave that command, he was asked, well, who is my neighbor? And then he launched into the story of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Someone who is an outsider and an outcast who saw a man on the side of the road who was robbed and beaten and left for dead. And even though there was basically, let's just put it, there was a pastor and a deacon who saw the same person and they chose to cross the street and keep on going. This Samaritan, who was not thought well of in that society, chose to go to him and care for him and tend for him and even sacrifice for his well-being, which Jesus praises. And he says, that is what neighbor is. And that's how Jesus loves us. He doesn't love us the way that we deserve. He loves us better than it is that we deserve. Because Jesus valued our lives even at the expense of his own. We have a tendency to value our lives over the lives of other people. But Jesus chose to lay his life down that we might be rescued and saved and that we might receive everlasting life as a promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he didn't do this because we're good little soldiers. We're good little children because we deserved anything. Instead, the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 5, he did this 
when we were enemies, he did this before we were righteous. That is how he loved us at the point of even being enemies. And that is how he commands us then to love those that are around us. So we're not supposed to do any harm. We're not supposed to hate inside of our hearts. So what are we supposed to do? The Bible says that we are to take off and put on. The put on then is that we're to love. And we're to love with our heart. And that isn't just for the people that are easy to love and the people who are like us. Because just after Jesus talked about what it is that hate is the root of evil, he then goes on in Matthew chapter 5 to say, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's nowhere in the Bible, by the way. That was false teachings of the Pharisees. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's real easy to love the people that look like me, that talk like me, that live in my neighborhood and according to my own socioeconomic class or my own level of education or my own race or my own political views or anything else. I can love those people. But those people that aren't like me, those people that are angry, those people that I consider my enemies, I can't love them. I don't have to love them. You do if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Because it's a command to love even your enemies. He says, if all you do is love the people who are like you, you're no better than the Pharisees. And that's hard. It's not just hard to love your enemies, brothers and sisters. It's impossible. You'll never be able to stir up this kind of obedience and this kind of love in your own heart. The truth of the matter is, this kind of love has to be put inside of you from somewhere else. And that's a gift of the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When I turn from my efforts to be obedient to God's commands, when I receive love, right? We love, why? Because we've first been loved. Not because I stirred it up in my heart to somehow love God or love other people. If I'm going to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I'm going to love my neighbor as myself, I have to first position myself to receive that love from God. And so the only way that I have the ability to love my neighbor or let alone love my enemy, I have to first position myself under the good gift and generous giving hands of God to pour his love into me and receive the love that comes through Jesus Christ as I turn from my sin and I'm adopted into his family. And so when then I turn and I trust and I receive from God what I can't stir up in myself, God does a transforming work in my life that enables me then to be obedient. Because I understand I was an enemy of God, but I was loved anyway. And the more I reflect on that and the more that I believe that and the more that I understand that, it's going to change how I interact with my enemies, and therefore our changed heart change our behavior. So not only are we to love with our heart, we're to love with our hands. And this is where it gets tricky. This is the place where I had never taken this command to. This is the place where I doubt many evangelical Christians have ever been brought before. We're real quick to just take this sermon and spend the entire time talking about abortion, euthanasia, suicide, and condemning those things, and we leave obedience at arm's distance for ourselves. Because this is what James says in James chapter 2, verse 14 and through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. What does that mean for this command? 
But one of our interpretive principles that we need to understand about the Ten Commandments is that whatever God says don't do, if we get tunnel vision on it, we miss all of the things that we're free to do. So on the other side of don't murder, the positive way of saying this same command then is to say value life. Because life is infinitely value, valuable. And so when we start thinking, stop thinking in the terms of, well, I've never killed anybody, so I'm good. And we start thinking in the terms of, how am I living out an, a, a deep desire to express and show the world the inherent value of every single person that is around me? That gets really difficult. But that is how we have seen this principle understood and portrayed for years It was Martin Luther who said this. This commandment is violated not only when a person actually does evil, but also when he fails to do good to his neighbor. Or though he has the opportunity, fails to prevent, protect, and save him from suffering bodily harm or injury. If you send a person away naked when you could clothe him, you have let him freeze to death. If you see anyone suffer hunger and do not feed him, you have let him starve. Likewise, if you see anyone condemned to death or in a similar peril and you do not save him, although you know ways and means to do so, you have killed him. If you, it will do you no good to plead that you did not contribute to his death by word and deed, for you have withheld your love from him and robbed him of his service, of the service by which his life might have been saved. It's not enough to just not kill people. We as believers in Jesus Christ are to love like Christ which is to extend, uh, to extend grace and mercy even in the most dire of circumstances. How many people would rise up and defend their own lives without question from an armed enemy? How many would potentially rise up and defend their family with no question from an armed enemy? How many would rise up and, and defend their friends or this church if there was an armed enemy that were able to come through those doors? We wouldn't question that at all, but how often do we sit back and sit by and pass by and make excuses for the person that's under the threat of death from cold, from hunger, sitting on the side of the road? Death is an enemy no matter where it comes from. And if we value life as God values life, that we are under an obligation according to this command to do everything that is in our power to protect life. To love others. Being a Christian is about far more than just coming together and declaring fasts and praying and discipling one another and planning for evangelism and teaching the other's truth and everything else. Throughout Scripture, God consistently condemns his people for two things, breaking the first four commandments, that's called idolatry, and breaking the last six commandments, that's called injustice. And he condemns his people specifically in Isaiah chapter 58, where the people come to him and say, God, we're fasting, we're doing everything that you've asked, we're sacrificing and all of this stuff, and you're not listening to our prayers. To which God then responds, is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke of oppression, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? 
Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Why is the church despised in the world today? Because we've forgotten the example of the centuries of Christians that have gone before us, who were known for being the ones who ran into the plagues to provide care, who ran into the streets and collected the dead and cared for their bodies and buried them, who showed mercy and grace. And yet, just like the monks that Luther condemned for creating their own little pious societies cut off from the world where they don't see all of the pain and the brokenness that sin has existed so that they can feel good about themselves in all of their obedience to God in their prayers and their fasting and their piety, we are to be people who are ambassadors of Christ into the brokenness of our world. Providing mercy and grace and love and sacrificing for the sake of those that are around us. Where injustice exists, which is the devalue, uh, devaluation of anyone to use, abuse, and misuse them for our own gain, we as Christians must stand against it. It's not about my rights. It's about the inalienable rights given to every human being by our Creator. And standing for those. Our society doesn't see the value. See that on Survivor, the way that we're quick to value one another and we rank people as their importance in our lives and we use the people that we deem below us and we befriend and protect those that we deem equal or above. But it doesn't take much further for us to talk about how little we value human life than to just go back and think about the last Black Friday news special that you watched. And over a $50 toy, somebody's willing to trample somebody else in order to get to it. In a world that devalues human life in so many different ways, we're supposed to be different. We're supposed to be marked with love and mercy and grace for our friends, for our family, for our neighbors, for strangers, and even for our enemies. How do you need to respond? to God's command, not only don't murder, stand for life. Do you have the grace in your heart to be able to love even your enemies? Do you have the ability in your heart to extend grace and forgiveness to those who've hurt you? If not, stop trying to create it on your own and instead run to Jesus. For those of us that have realized, you know what? I've never thought about it this way. And I can think of countless times this past week or this year where I've already failed to stand for life and value the lives of the people that are around me to care and pray and protect and do whatever was necessary in order to show how valuable their life is. God's grace and mercy is bigger than our sin you'd come to him, he would grant you grace and he would grant you mercy and he would fill each and every one of us and ask him to begin to change my heart to see those that are around me and to serve those that are around me that I might stand before God in confidence on that day. Maybe you're here and, and you don't even know what it is to be loved by a God who is your enemy because of your rebellion 
and your refusal to surrender and submit to him, he calls you today by the love of Jesus Christ who died for his enemies that you might be transformed from the inside out if you would just surrender, turn from yourself and trust in Jesus today and let him change you from the inside out that you might experience life abundant now and life everlasting in heaven.